<laughs> you could do MC Hammer. <laughs> And touch this. I'm like, <laughs> uh, how the Mario, how the Mario thing go? Uh, yes, <laughs> there it is. That's when it gets hard. <laughs> it makes me want to jump into a pipe. What's up, dueling decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the '90s or the '80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know. But now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Broadcasting from the Infirmary Media Studios, it's the adult-only retro game show where the 80s and 90s battle for supremacy. Because it's your history, we just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let's hear from this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for as we get back to tag team action here on our show. I am Mark James, one half of the team known as the Mama Lukes, alongside this man. What's up, Man Crush? I'm Man Crush. (laughs) Uh, We have February 11th through the 17th of 1990. We have one solid week. We have an awesome guest judge on tonight. We got Wax. Before we get started, Wax, I listened to the, what is it? It's Ba, right? The album? Ba. Yeah, it's called Ba. What does that stand for? Because you got periods in there. Am I that stupid that I haven't figured it out? No, not at all. It's called the Bitch-Ass Acoustic Album. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't yeah. find it anywhere. I'm like, obviously, I'm just going to ask him. I'm too fucking lazy and shot for this. But Yeah, no, it's okay. <laughs> right, it's, a little, it's a little misleading. That's why I didn't really tell it. Uh Cause when I first started making the album, it was going to be an acoustic album. And then the more I added drums and keyboards, it's like when you listen to it, you might not think it's an acoustic album. So I just left it, you know, I was going to call it uh, like a uh, basic assortment of American anthems. Uh, and I'm kind of, kind of, kind of leaving it up to anybody, but I just call it, I just call it like the sound a sheet makes. You know, like, I just said it really, I said it really weak just now though. That, don't say like that. Yeah. But you'd say it's so much better than I do. Like, bah, like, yeah. Bad. Okay. You get like extra syllables out of it. I can't do that. But you also did have the uh, the acoustic on Monday album that came out last year, right? That and that was another thing that made the acoustic things uh, <laughs> not confusing. Really st- yeah, I'm not good gotcha. at I'm not I'm not good at marketing, man. I'm not good at marketing. <laughs> but you're good at music, so that's all that matters. And acronyms too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Go ahead, Mark. And the challengers tonight, representing February 10th. Through the 16th of 1985, please welcome Teddy Ruxpin 8, my public enemy tape. I'm Mike Ranger, and I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) I think Mike's scared from the last time that he saw Wax. Because you guys had the, that rap battle. I don't even know. If- oh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I lost. Wax is going to pull one out on you in the middle of the fucking episode. Like round three, he's going to be like, let's do this right now. No way. I've been, since then, I've just been writing for the <laughs> You it's were actually prepping. the inspiration for the last couple albums. Mike. <laughs> Uh, hey, what's up, guys? I am Drew Zachman, host of the One Headlight 90s podcast, and I would love to maybe win a game. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, please welcome back the legendary rapper, writer, producer, podcaster, and comedian, Wax. 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to be back, and I'm very excited about this because I love pop culture from the 80s and 90s. I'm a child of music television. Oh, damn, and we have nothing from – well, we don't have anything from music television, but we'll make something happen. You don't have anything from music television? How's that not? Because we only have seven days for this one. This is uh, February 11th through the 17th. So I don't know. We might. We might. There might be something that shocks you. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to drop it right here. We'll see. Okay. I'd be, I feel like everything some, somehow hit, hit MTV, you know? We'll see. Yeah. We'll see. Now, yeah, now I'm going to have to go back and look. Fuck. I'm going to have to change uh, picks. I, I was, I, you know, I, I saw the other stuff happen too. All right, ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges' coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Cotton candy sweet to go. Let me see that Tootsie Roll as we play some more. Dueling Decades. <laughs> all right, let's head right down to Big Wax for the official toss-off. All right, well, I've got a, uh, a passport, some kind of government document of passports. One of them is blank. One of them has text. If you somebody want to call text or blank. All right. Teddy Ruxpin ate my public enemy tape. You guys can call it. On three. One, two, three. Blank. <laughs> it was blank. All that right. kind of floated. I thought it was going to yeah. do one of them spinneroonies, but it didn't do it. No spinneroonie. All, right. All right. You guys have control of the board. What category would you like to go with first? I don't know, Mike. What are you, what are you thinking, bud? Uh, what do you think our worst category is? I don't think we have any. Oh. That's all. That's all strong. I think we are. <laughs> you want to? How about? How about we start with news? What are your, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? That's pretty good. All right. On the date of February fifteenth, nineteen eighty-five, uh, this story we have is one of resilience, the American spirit, and determination. Uh, CNN correspondent Jeremy Levin escaped from Lebanon captors. The story is actually pretty insane, though. So Levin was actually held captive in Beirut for 11 months. Almost all of it was in solitary confinement, which is crazy. Although there's some days at work, I actually would not mind being by myself for that long. (laughs) Uh, And most of the time, he was chained to a wall or radiator. So, I mean, I'm chained to my laptop, so I kind of identify, but not really. Uh, Levin eventually said, you know, he was like, screw this, and escaped by tying three blankets together and sliding down a wall of the two-story building that he was being held captive in and fleeing to a Syrian army position in Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. And this is, the the story itself is impressive, but the fact that, so he's a 52, at the time, he was a 52-year-old reporter. He was also nearsighted, and they took his glasses away. Now, I don't know what his prescription was, but mine is like negative 4.75. So if they took my glasses away, I'm I'm not going anywhere. Like 11 months is way too long to use the same pair of contacts. So I'm I'm going I'm flying blind at that point. So I'd probably escape. I'd probably fall out the window. And I would also then probably run right back to the same building that I just left because I wouldn't be able to see. So uh, Jeremy Levin escaped from Lebanon captors and eventually was brought back home to the United States of America. 
All right, Mike Ranger, what is your pick for the news round? Okay, I uh, I found an article uh, from the L.A. Times on February 14th, 1985, uh, entitled, uh, Obesity Kills, Government Health Committee Warns. That's the wrong pick, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, really, uh, on February 10th, 1985, we had the 35th NBA All-Star Game, and that was Michael Jordan's very first NBA All-Star Game. Mm. Uh, that took place on February 10th. On That's the Sunday. Uh, the night before uh, was the dunk contest with uh, Jordan going up against Dominique Wilkins. Dominique Wilkins ended up winning that. Uh, the West ended up defeating the East uh, 140 to 129. Uh, and this thing's got a ton of Hall of Fame players in it. You've got Jordan, Magic Johnson, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Moses Malone, Isaiah Thomas, Robert Parrish, Larry Bird, Dr. J. So, yep. Damn. It's a 35th NBA All-Star lineup. Game. No defense. So, well, yeah, well, it's All-Star Games. They never do that. But, yeah, that was, like, I feel like the that around that time, like, the mid-'80s to, I would say, like, the mid-'90s. I would say maybe actually 2000 when Vince Carter had that crazy dunk contest, which might have been 2001 maybe. But, like, the dunk contest growing up for us were fantastic. You know, you had Jordan, I think, that dunk contest when he took off from the free throw line. You had, you know, and Dominique Wilkins was amazing. You had Rex Chapman doing some crazy stuff. You had Sean Spud Kemp. Webb. Yeah, Spud Webb, Sean Kemp, and all, like, 43 of his kids. Uh, it was... it was <laughs> When he actually had money. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those dunk contests, uh, was it D. Brown? I mean, they, they, was so, they were so much fun to watch back then. Now, I, I really don't watch them anymore. Uh, I still watch the hockey all-star game skills competitions because, I, I don't know, I just, I don't know. I think it's fun, and I think every year it still is fun. But the dunk contest, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much else you can do with dunks. I mean, like, the creativity, I feel like, might be uh, stagnant a little bit. But All right, Man Crush, that's over to us for the news round. All right. Do you want me to start? I'll start. Yeah. I think yours is a little bit, eh, I don't know. They're both pretty good. Uh, February 13th, 1990. Here's a story out of the Associated Press by uh, Barry Schweed. Everybody knows Barry, uh, which is titled, Accord on Reuniting Germany. The United States and its major European allies forged an agreement with the Soviet Union and East Germany on Tuesday in a two-stage formula to reunite Germany, which had been split since the World War II. Victor split it 45 years earlier. So, I mean, when was the last time you heard East Germany? When yeah. I was reading this story, I was like, fuck. Yeah. Uh, stage one. After East Germany's March 18th election, East and West Germany will meet to agree upon a legal, economic, and political issues. And then stage two, both the East and West Germany, like I guess their uh, their administration will meet again, but this time they're going to meet with the four World War II allies, the United States, Soviet Union, France, and Great Britain. And this meeting will approve the external reunification, such as letting them rejoin NATO. Which can you even imagine like Germany not being in this stuff? And that was only 30 years ago that they weren't. Uh, and obviously you have to give Hasselhoff some props here. Because without <laughs> him, the wall wouldn't have fucking come down. That's right. Uh, so I think he needs to be recognized in this, even though the fucking Barry Schweed did not say Hasselhoff at all in this. But this is the accord that uh, reunited Germany as one nation on February 13th, 1990. Was it, so was it Schweed or was it Schweddy? 
Uh, I wish it was Schwetti, but it's. Uh, I'm probably okay. butchering the shit out of his name, <laughs> but it's 30 years ago. I don't even know if he's alive anymore. But yeah, Barry Schweed. Yeah, Pete Schwetti. He had those sweaty balls. <laughs> that was his cousin. <laughs> oh, his cousin. Sorry. All right, drop yours because I think your story is a little more hard hitting. But even though like that's unifying of a nation, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. I mean, was it was it actually was it actually unified or was it just a saying they were probably going to be unified? This is the accord that they approved the uh, the combination of East and West. Now ahead of them is they have to do these two stages, and once they're done with that, then they're a country again. Mm, okay. I guess there was like just thinking about it from the outside, you would think like, well, why can't they just you know the walls down? Now you're Germany, but I guess there's a lot of shit that was involved. So this was step one. A lot of paperwork. Yeah, yeah right. It's a lot of administrative duties. <laughs> right. That <laughs> hire a temp. <laughs> <laughs> Outsource that shit. <laughs> All right, guys, so I'm going to take you back to February 11th, 1990, and that was the day that Nelson Mandela was finally released from prison. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure you guys are all familiar with the Mandela effect, of course, and that's when you actually believe that a CNN reporter was held hostage for all those years when really it was Nelson Mandela. Oh, I thought that was when he was in the Sinbad movie. Oh, is that what it was? Uh, yeah, I get it all it mixed up. <laughs> no, of course, the real Mandela effect is when you think Nelson Mandela died in prison. But he did not, of course. He was released on February 11th, 1990. Uh, his release follows the relaxation of apartheid laws in South Africa. Mr. Mandela appeared at the gates of the Victor Versace prison at 614 local time, which they note was actually an hour behind schedule. And he was with his wife, Winnie. So this guy spends 27 years in prison. On his first day out, his wife is still making him late. So- <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. So Mandela spoke to a crowd of 50,000 people that gathered outside of a home for him. He was originally convicted in 1964 of treason and sabotage. Damn. Uh, he spent most of his life doing hard labor imprisoned uh, on an island just off of Cape Town, South Africa. So that's what I have for my news entry, February 11th, 1990, Nelson Mandela's life. Nelson Mandela's wife makes him late. <laughs> Dude, that's, that's hilarious. You just combined wife and late and said wife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is the wrong person to put them together. <laughs> oh, Mark. Anyhow. So here's what's funny. So when we were looking up our research. On February 11th of 1985, one of the things I saw was that Nelson Mandela actually refused his release. Yeah, yeah he did that a few times, actually. Yeah. They, they wanted to release him a few times, and he said no based on his principles. But finally, on February 11th, 1990, he finally got out of prison. Thank God. Man, that's a long fucking time. Yeah. That is a lot. But he didn't escape. <laughs> he tunneled out. My guy, my guy, my guy escaped. <laughs> Well, 27 Ooh. years is a, 27 years is a lot longer than 11 months, I would say. That's yeah. a valid point. It's a and, lot longer. 20. And who who is your guy again? Jeremy Levin. You don't remember him? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see what our judge Wax has to say. Let's throw it down the wax for the judgment for the news round. I was. It's an interesting comparison. You can really put these things head to head because you got Mandela versus Levin. One of them is 11 months, and one of them is 27 years. One of them escaped with three blankets. He said, "That's what you said. He had three. He tied three blankets together. I mean, but but he did it without his glasses. That's, a, <laughs> that's impressive. I don't understand why he got three blankets. Uh, it was a, it was a two story building. Who, so who, but I'm four, saying four, who, four is too many. 
Yeah, it's really, it's almost seems like a nice prison to give you three blankets. You know, you usually only get one blanket. Well, he only got one blanket, but mysteriously, the two guys next to him just disappeared. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have a pillow. Right. <laughs> well, then, well, you put Levin up against Bandela. And then, you know, this East versus West Germany against the East versus West NBA players. Who <laughs> <gotta put> <laughs> <Very nice. laughs> and, uh,. That's a tougher. That's a tougher one for me because you know the historical <laughs> significance for me. I think more about the basketball. You know, I remember that was when Dominique Wilkins did the windmill yep. uh, dunk that he was so popular for, and everybody in my neighborhood tried to. You know, we had like the basket where you put the the, the broomstick <laughs> up in there, up in the thing, and the, it would fall down, and all of a sudden it's like three feet tall, and you can windmill dunk. <laughs> we actually had. We actually had a launch ramp, like a skateboard launch ramp that we would run up and run off of and try to dunk on a regular size uh, hoop. And I saw a kid like damn near kill himself doing that. I was just going to ask, so, what was the kid's name who broke his arm? James Doswell. <laughs> <laughs> name was James Doswell. There's always right one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's never been able to use his arm ever again. <laughs> it's affected his love life for years. <laughs> so this is, this is a tough one, but I think that, uh, I think that it's going to have a lot to do with uh, Mark's delivery. Uh, I like to, I like to, I like this delivery. I'm going to go with you guys on that one. It's it's mostly because of the Mandela. I think uh, I got to I got to go with that. All right, the Mandela effect earns us a point. Man crush, we have control of the board. What category do you think we should go with next, man? Oh, man, I think all these are pretty fucking strong. Seriously, um, let's go movies. Movies? Yeah, we can do some movies. All right, you you can lead us off on this one. All right, guys. So released in the United States, February sixteenth, nineteen ninety. I'm going to take you back to a movie that I'm sure you guys are all familiar with. Now, this film is about a young boy who loves movies and cinema, and he forms a relationship with a much older projectionist at his local movie theater. And this, this is not sounding good. <laughs> so this movie is just a love affair with other cinema, <laughs> and it has so many different homages to other cinema. You guys know what I'm talking about? No. Last Action Hero? It is not Last Action Hero. <laughs> but this is the movie that Last Action Hero so blatantly ripped off. This is Cinema Paradiso. Now, don't be amazed if you've never heard of this movie. Most people haven't. This is an Italian film, but it is one of the greatest films of all time. Cinema Paradiso was a critical box office success. It is regarded by many as a classic and it is particularly renowned for its kissing scene and the montage at the end of the film. And the film has actually won an Academy Award for Best Foreign Film, and it is often credited with reviving Italy's film industry completely. Uh, it is included in the 101 best movies you must see before you die. It's the number 52 on the IMDb to Top 250 with an 8.5 rating. And it has an overall score of 91% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. So this is Cinema Paradiso. It's a, a filmmaker recalls his childhood when falling in love with the pictures at the cinema of his, of his home village. And then he forms a friendship with the cinema's projectionist. Really what this movie does is everything we love about cinema. That love affair we have with how movies are just so over the top and things just work. It kind of takes you on that journey where he falls in love with a girl for the very first time, and it covers it much like how we would see it represented on the silver screen. 
So it's kind of a movie about a movie about your love affair with movies. If you've never heard of it, go check it out. Cinema Paradiso. It was released in the United States February 23rd, 1990. All right. Good shit, man. You, it was sketchy to begin with. The beginning of your description. I didn't know where you were going with that. <laughs> it sounded really a young boy with an older projection. In his hand <laughs> It's like, this is not going to be good. I've seen that movie before. <laughs> yeah. I think I've read about this. All right. Uh, February 16th, 1990. Uh, here's a cult classic. Uh, you can actually head over to Amazon Prime. You can watch this one once you're done listening to this episode. It's part horror. It's part fantasy. It's part action. It's your typical Clive Barker classic. But in this one, the monsters are actually good guys and the humans are bad guys. Mike, I know you know where I'm going with this because you commented or did something with my post last night when I threw this up there because I had to watch it again. Uh, actually, Clive Barker wanted to make this like the Star Wars of horror films. That was his ultimate plan. Uh, the movie stars uh, Craig Schaefer. You probably recognize him from movies like The Program. He was Joe Kane, the quarterback in that one. Uh, he was in A River Runs Through It. And uh, it also features legendary cult filmmaker David Cronenberg, uh, the director behind mm. The Fly, Scanners, Videodrome, uh, Dead Ringers, Crash. The guy's done a shitload of uh, horror flicks. Uh, and he's the main bad guy in this movie. So that's a treat. This movie, it only made $9 million in the box office, which is around $18 million in 2020. So it's not a huge box office juggernaut. But the production companies are to blame for this one. This is the Clive Barker classic Nightbreed. Uh, and basically, and Clive Barker said this, 20th Century Fox, they just never understood what the movie was about. So the theatrical version is cut to shreds. They actually cut 40 plus minutes out of this movie to make it a slasher flick. And it's the theatrical version is very weird. It doesn't uh, really make sense. So a few years back, Clive Barker started touring the country uh, they had found footage from, they called it the Nightbreed Cabal Cut, which is actually the entire movie as it should have been done. But the additional footage from this was all work tapes. So they put it all together, you know, with the HD copy, and then they would have these scenes come up in like this just really raw video footage. So uh, Scream Factory ended up putting that out in 2014, and it sold out immediately in the first day. Uh, and then just to, to show you the legs that this has, 11 months ago, a teaser came out for the ultra cabal cut of this movie. There was, it was leaked. They showed like a little teaser of it. Uh, and it was supposed to be three plus hours of Nightbreed, wow. over three hours of this movie. And uh, it just, it's till this day, it still has not surfaced and people are still waiting. I looked it up. People are still asking questions. Where is this shit? Uh, but 30 years later, people are still wanting to see this uncut movie. That's my that's legs, guys. That's legs in movies. But that's Nightbreed, February sixteenth, nineteen ninety, the Clive Barker cult classic. All right, let's toss it over to Teddy Ruxpin eight my public enemy tape for the movies round. All right, so on February fifteenth, nineteen eighty five, was the day high school wrestler Loudon Swain made his mark with the classic coming of age story Vision Quest. Featuring Matthew Modine as Loudon Swain, a determined athlete who wants to drop weight in order to wrestle the best wrestler in the state. Madonna has her first on-screen appearance and is, has two featured tracks on the soundtrack with uh, Crazy For You and Gambler. Uh, outside of America, the movie was known as Crazy For You. Uh, the film was a mild success, grossing $11 million, but became a cult favorite among high school wrestlers. 
The only real disappointment here is that we didn't get Vision Quest 2, Loudon Swain, space gynecologist. <laughs> How many times after you saw that movie did you try to go into the gym and just grab the pegs and try to just go up the pegboard as fast as you can? Oh, yeah. And just like, first off, I don't know where that pegboard exists. Oh, really? They used no, to have I've, it in our I've high never school. seen that, but um, definitely the uh, lunatic fringe playing in the background. Oh. Dude, I cannot fucking. I used to get up like three or four and just hang there like a dickhead. It was impossible. <laughs> I can't even believe you could do that many. Because <laughs> I, I did it the cheating way where you just kind of hang your body weight and, you know, go up to the next peg. Not like he did it in the movie. That shit's crazy impressive. And just doing swinging like this. Yeah. <laughs> even at that age, I knew my limitations. <laughs> why was Why was the wrestling movie called Vision Quest? Because he's on a vision quest to. Uh... Fucking, I don't know. <laughs> Drop weight. <laughs> because boys rolling around in tights just didn't seem to work. <laughs> it's, it, no, it's, it's absolutely stupid. His best friend in the movie is actually pretending to be a Native American for about 75% of the movie. And he talks about how he had, he was like in a teepee and he was doing some peyote and uh, he had, he saw that uh, Loudon was, had like a vision quest or something, something that he had to achieve. It was weird. Yeah, that seems like a weird two different movies you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. That's uh, Madonna's here. <laughs> but it had, that, yeah. that means the movie had everything. A little bit of everything for I everybody. I think that name, what was the, uh, the other name in Europe? Uh, crazy for you. I think that's even worse. <laughs> Vision Quest sounds cool, man. Like, it's totally not what you're going to like expect to see, though. There is a love story in there, though. Yeah, well, there's a story of a 21-year-old girl uh, chasing after a 17-year-old. Yeah, which is normal in 1985. Oh, yeah, it's perfectly acceptable. It happened and to Alex B. Keaton. It could happen to anybody. <laughs> <laughs> I picture, like, the uh, the start, you know, like, the starting position of two wrestlers, one of them like this, and that says crazy for you right on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was Mark's movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was the movie made by the, the guy that was in Cinema Paradiso, the old... <laughs> <laughs> the old the old projectionist on his other camera. That was actually the movie that, that the young boy was watching in the cinema. So. <laughs> All right, let's toss it over to Drew Zachman. What do you got for movies, man? Uh, well, uh, question: How do you take a one million dollar investment and turn that into fifty one point five million dollars? Ponzi scheme. <laughs> well, you could do you could do that too. Uh, you just keep five select students in Saturday detention and see what happens. And thanks to John Hughes, we all asked the important question, does Barry Manilow know you raid his wardrobe? If you don't know what I'm talking about now, uh, I'm not sure what to tell you, but uh, I'm talking about The Breakfast Club, which came out also on February 15th, 1985. Uh, this movie's fantastic. I, I, I don't know if I need to really say much more about it. Um, I, I, one of the things I didn't know was like how much money it actually made. I thought it was uh, maybe a little bit less, more of like a cult-type following, at least from the box office standpoint, but it did pretty well. So if you convert those dollars to, to 2020, uh, that's a $2.3 million budget, and that translates into $123 million at the box office. But uh, this is easily one of my favorite John Hughes movies, uh, which does a lot. Considering he gave us Mr. Mom, 16 Candles, Planes, Trains, Automobiles, Weird Signs, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and some of the best Christmas movies in Home Alone and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So, yeah, Breakfast Club, it's insanely quotable. Even Rotten Tomatoes gave this flick an 89% fresh score with a 92% audience score. So, I mean, all the all the numbers are there. 
the money's there and this movie is still fantastic and I absolutely love watching it. Timeless. One of the movies that you can actually take the whole cell phone era out of because they're in detention so they wouldn't have their cell phones anyway. Right. And it still works today. It's such a yep. fucking amazing movie. Yep. Classic. Son of a bitch. Let's throw it down <laughs> to the judge wax for the ruling for the movies round. Before I even go into the ruling, I find it in- I've never thought about how how low budget you could make um breakfast club with it was really there was really one location basically yeah yeah i mean a million uh, two point million dollars today was one a one million dollar budget even back then back then yeah. like it's that's nothing you couldn't even get an actor for that now i guess uh that that was must have just been such an early movie for him and uh what a way what a way to come into the game you know what i mean with, a, with something like <laughs> yeah. that that allows you to do the home alones and whatnot in the future, national lampoon i didn't i didn't even know he did that yeah, I mean that's beyond classic. Not only do we have that, we have a the the holy tr- the whole the holy trinity, which is a got a little kid pretending to be Native American, which is <laughs> check high school wrestling check and Madonna's first appearance check. I mean, when you compare that to Nightbreed, I mean it's fucking trounces it. <laughs> trounces <laughs> complete trounces. Although although if I had honestly if I had to take any of those movies and. I, I think that Cinema Paradiso movie actually sounds like a movie that I would watch. I think that sounds cool. But uh, I, as far as the winner of this round, I, I got to go with uh, Vision Quest and Breakfast Club. And uh, that's, that's yeah, a good I don't one. Know. Damn, that's a slam dunk. The Nightbreed, the Nightbreed didn't do it for me. I could see like that's for some people they'd be like, that's the one. That's nothing beats Nightbreed. But <laughs> it sounds like a sounds like a band a band I saw back then. <laughs> You know? Yeah, it's actually it's a really good movie, but you can't watch the theatrical cut of it because it doesn't make any sense. Right. But this is what it's about. If you want to go and watch this one, guys, this is it. Aaron Boone, which is Craig Schaefer, he's haunted by terrifying nightmares of a city of monsters. He goes to see a psychiatrist who is Dr. Decker, who's played by David Cronenberg. He goes there for help. But when Boone doesn't know that Decker is really a serial killer... Decker frames Boone to take the fall for all the murders. And to begin this movie, there's a gruesome family being murdered. Not the family is gruesome, but the murders are gruesome. Um, And then uh, Boone ends up getting killed by the police. uh, But Boone is brought back to life by the monsters in his dreams. And they bring him to this place called Midian, which is the night breed who turned out to join Boone in his quest to stop Decker from killing again. So it's actually, it's a really cool movie, but you have to see at least the director's cut to make it make sense. So, but I, I, we can't beat fucking Breakfast Club. It's a classic. Speaking of, but, but remember, you know what's interesting about Vision Quest is I remember that this era, this '80s era, there was all these movies that were about like they were, you know, like uh, what was the uh, was it Rad and then yeah, like yeah. Gle- Gleaming the Cube. Everything yeah. had like their thing. Everybody yeah, had like, their movie. It didn't matter what you were into. There was probably a, La- a lacrosse one, you know, like <laughs> if you, sure there was that was it Gotcha? Wasn't like Gotcha like a, yeah, uh, it's a paintball uh, movie? Paintball. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. Heather's that's right. was croquet. <laughs> if you want to look at it that way, I guess you could. Then there was also a movie about rollerblading. Ah, Airborne. Airborne. That's right. Yeah, I think there was one about roller derby too. If I remember. Correctly. Yeah, prayer for the roller boys. Yep. Right. Right. Yeah. I always had their little niches. There was even like a, there was even like one movie. It wasn't the main part of the movie, but there was one of you guys will remember this. I think it was like a space, like a sci-fi movie where the main characters, their dogs caught frisbees. You guys know what I'm talking about? Air Bud Five. <laughs> Are you talking about Flay the Navigator? Yes. Yeah. Yes. 
Yeah. Mike's the movie guy. It's like it's like the, the whole intro scene of Flight of the Navigator is this like this frisbee dog I know, right? Every everybody's got their thing. It's fucking they awesome. They need to bring that back. Cuz yeah. like shit just went off the rails now cuz now they just reboot everything. So fucking yeah. reboot like some niche shit. Yeah. You know what? The other day I saw two kids throwing rocks at each other. Make a movie about that. Fuck yeah. That'd be fucking great. <laughs> I'd watch rock, it. rock throwers. No, I couldn't even have the name rock in it. It's got to be like Vision Quest 2. Yeah, you got to have something rock. like less offensive. Yeah. Vision, Quest, <laughs> Vision Quest 2, Flight of the Stones. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, that's it. We're we're going to write this. Wax, can you produce this for us? Like, We'll figure it out. We'll uh, we'll get everything together. I like sure. the direction this is going in. All right, you guys have control of the board. Where are you going for round three? Now, this is the last single point round. What do you think, Drew? You think TV, uh, maybe? Yeah, that's that's what I'm yeah. that's what I'm thinking. Yep. I'll start it off. All right. Uh, on February thirteenth, nineteen eighty five. Uh this episode came out on that day. And when you think about memorable automobiles, right? You think of the DeLorean, Ecto one, Kit, uh the van the A team van. Uh, but one that comes to mind for me, it's a glorious Majestic brown pickup GMC K2500 wideside. I am talking about Fall Guy. Lee Majors. Doesn't get any better than him. Uh, this particular episode aired that day where an aspiring singer flees from bail after being charged with the murder of a music producer and demolition man Colt teams up with her father to find her while the real killer, an extortionist who is trying to fleece money from the producer, Boy, this is really convoluted here. Um, also targets her for the audio tape in her possession, which has a recording of the crime incident. That sounds like a, a crazy plot. I don't remember watching that episode when I was a kid, but I do remember watching this show pretty often. He had that airplane. I had that toy when I was a kid. I played with the crap out of that. I love that thing. But you're uh, we're actually talking about music. I got some music for you on this. Guess what? Cameo appearances by Latoya Jackson, The Temptations, and The Four Tops. So pretty good, uh, pretty good cameos on this particular episode of The Fall Guy. Also, that I mentioned that brown pickup GMC is fantastic. Well, you should get negative points for not mentioning Heather Thomas at all. <laughs> Sorry, God, how are you gonna miss her? The brown pickup, man. <laughs> oh God, you're a little younger than me. Maybe we were looking at different things at the time. Probably. Yeah, I'm, was, I'm looking at like that cool I truck. I was seven and like, the girl. at that time, <laughs> so. Definitely Heather Thomas. All right, Mike Ranger, <laughs> over to you. What do you got, man? Oh, I, I cannot wait to tell you. Do it's tell. good. It's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on February 12th, 1985, Bob Euchre went on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and promoted his new sitcom, which would be premiering a few weeks, la a few weeks later on March 15th <laughs> on ABC called Mr. Belvedere. Classic show. <laughs> Two weeks in a row, we get a Mr. Belvedere sighting. I, I thought you'd like that, Mike. Uh, Euchre played George Owens, a sports writer with a wife and two kids who happens to have an English butler who once worked for the royal family uh, in his house. How does that work? I, I have never understood how, the logistics that of that show. To the, from the royal family to Bob Euchre's living room, he's setting the table. What did Bob Euchre do for a living? He was a sports writer. And he was able to afford this guy. Uh, yeah, it makes no sense, right? And he lived in the house, too. I guess that's how he afforded him. He can live here. That's what I always questioned. Like, 
what the hell did Mr. Belvedere do to get exiled that fucking bad? I know. <laughs> Bob Euchre, though, he's very clever, very creative. Uh, I mean, so I mean, what? Stephen A. Smith makes, what, like four or five million dollars a year? I think Bob Euchre is way better than he is. So I could see Bob Euchre pulling in some bucks back in 1985 enough to warrant such a butler. Yeah, maybe like a on on a like a Jeffrey from the Fresh Prince level, but he's right. not getting the cast of Downton Abbey to come and clean his fucking house. <laughs> <laughs> he was definitely some type of political refugee. <laughs> <laughs> he was fucking Brexit before Brexit, man. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> Interpol or whoever they have. <laughs> Maybe he was like secretly MI6. I heard Maybe. he was an Italian projectionist. Oh. <laughs> well, it does, you know, streaks on the China never mattered before. <laughs> yeah. No one cares. <laughs> so you had the fall guy and wait, was that Mr. Belvedere premiering? No, or? Uh, no but it's Bob Euchre going on The Tonight Show and talking about this show that he was doing that was about to be pr- coming out and about uh i think three weeks later yeah so what's special about that is we it, you know we didn't know it was going to go on to be this this big thing right. what a phenomenon mr belvedere was <laughs> it really it took was. the world it was by a storm. great show i like yeah. that show. oh dude it's great i love the For one that. with uh wesley and the counselor never saw it <laughs> or the one where wesley's friend gets aids that one's great that's a great episode <laughs> yeah that one that's fun for the whole family that had to be like 87-ish, like a couple years after it came out. Like that didn't come out. They didn't start off with a bang like that. Was that towards the end? They didn't start with the AIDS episode. For sure. No, the AIDS episode is, <laughs> is early. Yeah, that's not your that's not your pilot. You know, no, no. No, you don't want to lead, lead in with that. Don't put your no. AIDS foot first or whatever. All right. <laughs> All right, Mark, do you want to you wanna start this one out? Sure, I'll start this All one right. out. All right, guys, so for my television selection, I have an episode of Saturday Night Live that aired Saturday night, February 17th, 1990. Now, what's special about this episode, it was season 15, episode 13. The host was the great Tom Hanks, and the musical guest was the one and only Aerosmith, who made their first appearance on SNL that night. Some of the great sketches included Tales of Ribbedry, which uh, saw Tom Hanks dressed as a boot shiner. And the whole skit was really over-sexualized, and it was just filled with sexual innuendos. So that's a good one. Check that one out. But the big feature was Wayne's World for the night. Episode of Wayne's World where Garth had a cousin who was a roadie for Aerosmith. So they got Aerosmith on the show. Of course, the roadie cousin is played by Tom Hanks. So that's great to begin with. And then Aerosmith comes down to the basement to hang out with Wayne and Garth, and they actually sing the Wayne's World theme song. Now, keep in mind, this is about two years before the Wayne's World movie would come out, and Wayne's World 2 after that with Aerosmith and that. So this was the first time you really saw Wayne and Garth partying with Aerosmith. So that's my first selection, one of the great all-time episodes of SNL. Season 15, episode 13, just to show you that it's still relevant, the cold opening sketch for this episode was who? Donald Trump. Of course, it was a a Donald Trump sketch talking about his divorce from Ivana. So, hey, SNL still holds topical after all these years. So that's my selection. Over to you, Man Crush. Nice. Bringing up SNL two weeks in a row. Now, did anything happen with Aerosmith on that episode when they were doing their song? Because last week... 
we had an episode we talked about Rage Against the Machine getting banned for life. Yeah. Did they get banned? They didn't get banned, but see, they were not good boys. And that's kind of how Aerosmith rolls. They wanted to play Love in an Elevator. Lorne Michaels told them, no, you cannot play that on the show. It's a little too, little too vulgar. So instead, they played Monkey on My Back, which has the word fucking in it. And they didn't censor that. So that was kind of like their little dig back to Lorne Michaels. Yeah, and they didn't get booted out of the building like Rage Against the Machine did? I don't remember them being on the list of banned people. No, but. because I don't think they ever caught it. Because the, the fucking in Monkey on My Back is kind of just snuck in there. So I don't think anyone ever knew, noticed that it was even in the song. That's some shit. Wax, if you were going on Saturday Night Live, what would you play? That's not something I can answer, but just immediately like that. I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I mean, that's a, that's a hypothetical that could take a long time. Because I'd assume that the reason I was on there was because I had some level of success. You know what I mean? So <laughs> probably, it'd probably be obvious which which song got me there. If they just if they just fucking pulled my name out of a barrel of people that aren't big enough to be on the show and made it like a lottery, like like a, like as if a bunch of if a bunch of musicians had terminal diseases and they did a make a make a wish make a wish foundation. I don't know. I'd probably play a song that had the word fuck in it, too. What do I care about? <laughs> yeah. You might as well get banned. I mean, <laughs> yeah. At least you'll live on in infamy forever. Yeah, I could be, be with – I kind of look like Sinead O'Connor, you know? <laughs> you, you would need, didn't you wear like a – she was dressed like a fucking – didn't she wear like a big drapery-looking like thing? Like she looked like uh, – what do they call those people like back in the day with the weird fucking haircuts? Like they did to oh, Tim, uh, Tim Tebow? Like the Hare Krishnas? Yeah. No, not no. That's completely bald. It's I forgot what the fuck. I, like two rounds from now, I remember. But fuck it. Uh, here we go. Uh, February eleventh, nineteen ninety. You know, I remember this one on HBO, and I literally I was shell shocked as this entire thing unfolded. Uh, I literally remember to this day, like sitting up in my bed, completely captivated, like two feet away from my little thirteen-inch television, uh, just. The entire thing transpired before my 11-year-old eyeballs as I was watching this. It's fucking crazy. I'm sure you guys will remember this. The event took place in Tokyo, Japan, before a sold-out audience at the Tokyo Dome, before millions of eyes at home via HBO's broadcast, where we witnessed arguably the most famous sports upset of all time. Going into that night, the challenger, who was a 42-1 to underdog, he was ranked number seven by Ring Magazine at the time, he had just dealt with the devastating loss of his mother a couple weeks prior while he was training. And then on top of that, he contracted the flu the day before. So the odds are already stacked up against James Buster Douglas, who's about to face the baddest man on the planet in 1990, the man they called Iron Mike Tyson, who had 37 wins, 33 by knockout, and zero losses at the time. Basically, this was just like a gearing up fight for Tyson. He was going to knock a fool out, grab an insane paycheck, and look on to his next fight with the number one contender at the time, who was Evander Holyfield, who was actually in attendance at the Tokyo Dome at the time. However, in a scene I will never, ever get out of my head or forget, uh, Douglas knocks Tyson down in the 10th round, and you just see Mike looking for his fucking mouthpiece, for which seemed like an eternity as they counted, and you were just like, get up, get up, because... This guy was larger than life at the time. Uh, this is before like the rape thing and everything else that happened. So you were just dumbfounded at what was what you were watching. And I know like the whole thing with the slow uh, ten count in the eighth round, but 
you know, Mike really deserved to lose this fight. He got his ass kicked all the way to the end. And of course, you know, uh, Douglas would go on eight months later. He ended up losing the WBA, WBC and IBF titles to Evander Holyfield. And of course, Mike Tyson's life was never the same after this fight. So that's what I had February 11th, 1990. It's the Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson fight on HBO. Yeah, that fight was insane. I, I think everybody was just dumbfounded by what happened. It was absurd. And I mean, Mike's come out and said like all kinds of stuff. Like all he cared about at the time was just like banging chicks. He didn't care. <laughs> he didn't care about boxing. You know, like he just um, prior to that, he fired uh, Kevin Rooney and everything just kind of changed for him. You know, he was married to Robin Givens and it's a shame because at the time the dude was just a monster. He would just come out in his umbros, a fucking cut off towel on over his head and just destroy some dude in 90 seconds. And there was Larry Merchant was at ringside, I remember. And they were actually talking about not even the fight because it was such like a foregone conclusion that Tyson was going to knock this guy out. They were talking about their pets, how Tyson had like a pit bull and uh, Douglas had like a, a dog named Shakespeare. And they were just bullshitting about that because nobody cared about the fight. This was just a fight that had to take place for Tyson to fight Evander Holyfield in a couple months. So, man, what a fucking devastating loss that was on February 11th, 1990. But those are our two picks for the TV round. Off to wax. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. This is actually tough to be a judge of this game because it really gets you thinking about something. And I wasn't really ready to compare all that stuff. I forgot that was in Tokyo. Actually, it took place 9 a.m. for them. Wow. But that was one of those fights. It was like when you watch wrestling and it's like the first fight of the night is like Hulk Hogan versus Steve Tompkins or whatever. And it's just like, a, and it's just, a, and it's just a joke. But, and especially because at that time it was like, it wasn't, you, it shouldn't even go to the second round, much less he loses, you know? So I do remember that. And of course I remember the Wayne's world episode. Uh, that was not the first show of Wayne's World, though, correct? No. It was not the first. Yeah. It wasn't the first episode of Wayne's World. It was the first right. appearance of Aerosmith on SNL. Oh, okay. But Tom, Tom Hanks being that roadie, which I remember really well, he was funny as shit. That was, and I, that was when, that was when Tom Hanks, Hanks was kind of making a transition to being like, I'm not just a comedic actor. I'm a real actor. Right. In the eight, in the 80s, he was a comedy actor. Yeah. Uh, all the, you know, those are, those are big ones. And, uh, but the Mr. Belvedere, <laughs> that holds, you know, no pun, uh, Belvedere place in my heart. <laughs> it's funny how you always, at least for me, I can, I can remember all the theme songs, even if I don't remember the specific episodes that, uh, that you were talking about. Ah, shit, man. And then the fall guy, the fall guy with the brown truck. Classic. It is a classic. It is a classic. I remember that was back when, uh. You really remembered cars back then, and you could buy a poster of the car. And it was funny, you were talking about yeah. the truck, and he was talking about the girl. There was a period of time where, like, you know, when you're six or seven, you go to you go to the book fair, and you want the poster with the Corvette. But then you turn, like, 11 or 12, and you want the poster of the girl. You know what I mean? I think there actually might have been a poster of Heather Thomas on that truck in a pink bikini. Wow. If I'm Shut not up. mistaken. I, <laughs> I think like, there I, was. I think there was. I don't think there's any, I think, in that specific reference. <laughs> Did Heather Thomas wear anything other than a pink bikini? That's a good question. I would be disappointed if she did. And he's like, I think that poster may or may not be behind this desk. <laughs> I wish. I wish. Is, is Buster Douglas still alive? 
he, he is. He is yeah. still alive. He's he actually gained like a shit ton of weight at one point. I remember he was like over three hundred pounds. Mm. Just kind of like let himself go after that fight. But he actually he won after he lost to Evander Holyfield. He went on another little streak and then he retired mid nineties, I believe. I'm gonna. I, I think that uh, although although uh, I'm really to- I'm really torn on this because it's kind of like Mr. Belvedere is awesome. And the fall guy is awesome, but uh, just because it's interesting to see when people people were were different than they are now. So the combination of Donald Trump being the cold opening, um, what, what how we see Mike Tyson today versus then, how we see Tom Hanks today versus then, I'm gonna go with with you guys at the uh, 1990 for this particular round because it seems a little bit more pivotal. It seems a little bit more pivotal. I don't know. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go I'm gonna go pivotal over over your personal fear feelings yeah, yeah I think so and I apologize, I apologize to the other guys that was tough to no it's okay I'll just have to go write this down in my journal <laughs> <laughs> and put lipstick on while you're there. that's right <laughs> all right man crush that makes the score three to one we're up and have control of the board heading into the first two point round let's go uh, let's go music for this one something wax knows a lot about don't don't that might, that's not necessarily true, by the way. <laughs> no, I, I think so. I think you'll uh, you'll be good in this one. All right, man, Chris, I'll start this one off. All right, so I'm going to go to an article in the Los Angeles Times, February 16th, 1990. Rhythm and blues musician Ike Turner and husband of Grammy Award-winning rock star Tina Turner was sentenced in a, in Santa Monica today to four years in state prison on his latest conviction of cocaine arrests. So Ike Turner arrested and sentenced to four years in prison on cocaine arrests at 58 years old. Now, he's, he, was, he would serve about 18 months before he would even be eligible for parole. And what's a real kick in the dick about this story is because Ike Turner was in prison, he missed his very own induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Tina didn't even show up. Phil Spector had to show up and give a acceptance speech for them. So uh, Turner was convicted on January 16th of driving under the influence of cocaine. The four charges stemmed from Turner's arrest in West Hollywood in May 1989. The jury actually deadlocked on a few of the charges, uh, but he still ended up getting convicted, going down for four years, Doing a little bit of hard time for Ike Turner. All started on February 16th, 1990, when his conviction came in. Cocaine's a hell of a drug. Yeah. <laughs> you, thought, you, thought, you thought you'd think he could beat the case. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he beat everything else. I see Why what not? you did. You know? <laughs> Sorry. I thought when you told me that earlier, you had Rick James, but completely different guy. Completely different guy. Yeah, shit. Different guy, same cocaine. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. They, they probably have the same supplier. All right. Uh, February, speaking of Rick James, February 12th, 1990, we get the third studio album from this Oakland-based artist. His prior album that was released in the late 1988, it started to gain traction on the R&B charts, but he just wasn't there yet on the billboards. So when this album hit number one on the Billboard 200 for 21 weeks... You can kind of sort of imagine this success of the album was a little unexpected at the time, uh, but it still holds the glorious distinction as the longest standing number one rap album on the billboards ever at 21 weeks. Even outside of the rap genre, only eight albums ever held a number one slot longer than this one did. 
Uh, the album sported four singles. Three out of the four of those singles would end up being top 10 hits on the Billboard Hot 100. The album would go on to be certified Diamond in the United States, which is the first rap album ever to do so. And the worldwide album sales would exceed 12 million copies sold. Uh, it's not too shabby for an album that Guinness World Records claims to have been recorded on and produced for under $10,000 on a modified tour bus. Uh, the top single from this album only reached number eight on the billboards for various reasons that I won't go into. Uh, regardless of the single not hitting number one, everyone knows this song, and it goes something like this. Let me butcher it. It's a, a tour around the world from London to the Bay. It's hammer go, hammer, hammer. I don't even know that part. The rest can go and play. Can't touch this. <laughs> Obviously iconic. Uh, it's none other than MC Hammer. Please Hammer, Don't Hurt Him, released February 12th. 1990. Can you remember how much this was played? Nonstop. It was like every time you turned on MTV. I know uh, Wax, you said it earlier about, um, you know, music on television. Here it is. I mean, this is music on television because it was on, shit yeah. was on every show on MTV. Yeah. With those damn pants. Yes. <laughs> I mean, what it give it? It gave us, it's so iconic. You had the pants, the dance, the hook, you know? It's hammer time. Like, Remember you had still the, friend, the friend with the big triangle head? Remember that? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's so many cool things about that video. If you watch and you don't look at Hammer and you look at everything else, it's fucking absurd. And it was somebody that we could identify with growing up as a kid. I mean, here I'm watching MTV and there's a guy dancing on MTV wearing the same size pants I wear. I mean, it was... <laughs> Did you have the same haircut? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah, like the lines on the yeah, the lines on his side that was pretty uh that was oh pretty yeah tight. yeah and he was he was proudly proudly his sponsorship for shoes was british knights yes yeah, the that's right. get get up in bk and then he fucking be on the commercial <laughs> i had a pair of the uh the british no they were were they british knights or la gears i can't remember i always got them confused but they had like the fake air bubbles in them they weren't quite as good as the nike ones those are LA gear. I had a pair. Of oh those. god! I remember playing basketball at the court, and I stopped short, and the whole sole of the shoe came off. Oh, <laughs> so perfect. British Knights were kind of cool. They were kind of cool looking, if I remember correctly. I don't yeah. know why they don't come back. One of them's still around. Is LA gear the one that's still around? One yeah. still making sneakers somewhere. I think you can still get British Knights. I think you can. They, if they, they, they could definitely come back. Like, I don't know if you, like, you've noticed, but like, Fila is making a crazy comeback. Yeah. And champion, champion too. You know? I know. Big time champion. British Knights come back. Weird name for a shoe, British Knights. Maybe Wax, you should hit up British Knights. You could be their spokes guy. And then Maybe that'll catapult you to SNL. <laughs> SNL. Right. And we got this shit mapped out, and we'll start it out with Vision Quest 2. As like that'll be that'll be the launching point, man. Yeah, right. We got you, man. We got this. If you go to BritishKnights.com, you can order some BKs. Wow, nice. That's crazy, man. And you can follow them on Instagram. I can't believe that album was twenty-one weeks at number one. That's insane. That sounds about (laughs) right, though, because you could you could not not hear it. Yeah, I had I had it. I definitely had that album. I could I didn't. Oh yeah. The other big songs were "Pray" and "Too Legit (laughs) Too Legit to Quit." Well, Too Legit to Quit was the next album, wasn't it? That came out in yeah, that was the next one or ninety two. And then he started hanging out with Tupac, and the album after that, we got Pumps and a Bump. 
Yeah. Right. Right. So, yeah. Wait, you're right. Too legit. So what was the other? There was what was the? Oh, other have you seen people? her? Have you seen? Have her? Have you oh, seen her? Yeah. Uh, turn this mother out. And I think to turn this mother out was pre was the previous album. Yeah, yeah. that yeah. was the one that actually yeah. I didn't realize that that album in '88 went two times platinum. Yeah, he was he yeah. was good. Like he was he was like doing well on the hip hop and R and B space. But once he got into off. that suburban America space. <laughs> <laughs> all right so those are our picks i can't wait to see what 85 has yeah uh, I'll, I'll i think i'll go first here uh also i'd like to go on the record and officially state that i would wish reebok would bring back the pumps so reebok if anybody's listening please bring them back so you can hear and exactly <laughs> exactly uh and i'll wear them while drinking a crystal pepsi all right <laughs> on February 11th, 1985. Uh, everybody loves that song, How Soon Is Now, which was on the Smiths' Hatful of Hollow album. But that came up before, and the album I'm talking about followed up one of the best albums with one of the best albums in Meat Is Murder, which came out February 11th, 1985. The album was the band's only number one on the UK albums chart and stayed there for 13 weeks, thanks to songs like Barbarism Begins at Home and That Joke Isn't Funny Anymore. And this album is ranked number 295 on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. And the Smiths, they're still popular to this day. Uh, they've influenced a lot of bands to this day. And they currently have over 5 million monthly Spotify subscribers. And even lead singer Morrissey uh, went on to a solo career after that. And he himself has just under 2 million subscribers on Spotify. So... Uh, the Smiths' Meat is Murder. It's a good album. Uh, I, I was never really a huge Smiths fan. I love How Soon Is Now. It's a great tune. also loved when Love Spit Love did a cover of that in the mid-90s. But uh, yeah, this album's pretty good. And I, I feel like I would be okay with Rolling Stones putting it there 295 at the top 500. So Meat is Murder. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing like big hairsprayed hair. Like that new wave haircut. Yeah. People yes. like listening to that and maybe like uh, thinking about suicide, which is kind of <laughs> kind of dark. But that's uh, that's what, I'm, what I think about the Smiths. But it's good music, though. Yeah. Well, it's funny because like the lyrics are a little bit more, you know, down. But the, like, a lot of the music's kind of like more upbeat, kind of like dancey and poppy and synthy. So it's it's almost like a juxtaposition there. Was there a real was there a real uh, like vegetarian message in the in it? The meat is so. No, that's just a. It's a title. It's like Vision Quest. <laughs> <laughs> in '85, that week in '85, they just pulled any name out of hat. Right. Meat is murder. All right, what do you got, Mike? All right, on February fourteenth, nineteen eighty-five, Whitney Houston dropped her self-titled debut album, and even though sales were initially slow, the album eventually went on to become one of the greatest selling albums worldwide, selling over 20 million copies. God damn. The album spawned six singles and was nominated five times at the Grammys. Uh, singles include Thinking of You, You Give Good Love, All at Once, Saving All My Love for You, How Will I Know, and The Greatest Love of All. So on uh, Valentine's Day... 1985, Whitney Houston reminded everyone to never underestimate a nice, relaxing soak in the tub. <laughs> Jesus. Horrible. Damn, that's that's a good one. I actually got to do work at a, an elementary school called the Whitney Houston Elementary School in Newark that she went to. And the principal that was there at the time was her principal back in, like, I don't know, the 70s or whatever. He was still there. 
as a wow. principal. Yeah, this dude was telling me all kinds of stories about when she was a kid while I was trying to work. And I was like, dude, I'm trying to work. Like, I can just read this <laughs> shit online, bro. Yeah, she was probably, and she was probably, the 70s is probably right, I guess, because you said elementary school. But I was yeah. going to say, she probably, she probably was only 19 or some shit when that album came out. Yep. Huh? She was super young. Yeah. Damn, that's a, that's a good Thanks a lot, album. Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> Outsold the, uh, the 20 million, definitely more than 12 million that MC Hammer sold on that album. <laughs> But was she at number one for 21 weeks as a rap album? That's a tough one. Right. Well, he said you you said that there was eight albums that were non-rapped that beat it. One of them, I think, is Adele's album, which was called 21, strangely enough. Oh, but, no uh, shit. But but I don't know if that Whitney Houston album did or not. Whitney's in the Hall of Fame. Just yeah, saying. I, I mean, that's yeah. that's a tough round. I Like, if I put Marks, if I was judging this and I put Marks against either one of yours, that's a tough sell. So What was what was the what was the very first one on in 90? It was the hammer one, and what was the other one? Ike uh, Turner Ike. going to jail for four oh, years on cocaine right. charges and missing his own induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Damn. In today's in today's world, they wouldn't induct him. Nope. Yeah, no. They would Pete Rosen. <laughs> Which was also brought up on our last episode. <laughs> good, good throwback. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, that's an interesting one. I can I can tell you that I, I can tell you that I I never was big into the Smiths or Morrissey, although I respect it. I respect it much like Vision Quest. I don't know a lot about it, but I respect it. Uh, <laughs> I I was the out of all the things that you mentioned, the thing that I know the most about was the MC Hammer thing. That was big when I was a, a kid. Obviously, probably probably influential. I didn't realize how. Even when you started naming the songs, Have You Seen Her? I mean, Can't Touch This was based on the Super Freak song. Like, all of MC Hammer songs were kind of based on another song. I guess that's common in hip-hop, but, you know. Whitney Houston's biggest song was not from that album, was the Dolly Parton song, but it was not from that album. I uh, I loved uh, How Will I Know. That is a fucking song. That's a good right song. There. Yeah, it is. It's one of those songs, like, as soon as he said the title... I started singing it in my head. Yeah, yeah. You know, that's a good, that's a fucking yeah, good one. Like I distinctively remember my dad. Somebody had bought him the uh, forty-five record single of "How Will I Know," and Whitney's on the cover in like a white t-shirt tank top. Well, yep. somebody had penciled in, you know, over her nipples, and then wrote <laughs> in a little comic bubble that said, "Hi, Jimmy." Who, Jimmy's my dad's name, so. <laughs> <laughs> and oh that was in our house forever but yeah whitney houston whoo smoke show yeah yeah i can picture that that was that video and that whole art was like her in white by the backgrounds like it's very like literally bubblegum looking yeah you know i mean like yeah. pinks and everything and uh shit uh yeah <laughs> he's, he's so torn i mean yeah I, yeah i gotta say I, I, i'm not a, i'm not a fan of the smiths but i appreciate the impact that their music has had and that, you know Morrissey people worship at the altar of Morrissey you know what I mean not they don't yeah. work people don't worship at the altar of MC Hammer so much. No, not really. <laughs> for a couple you know? of years they probably did yeah yeah until so, his third bankruptcy <laughs> well but I will say MC Hammer you know he went bankrupt helping out his friends he was a generous guy yeah yeah Ike Turner man I don't think as much Ike Turner, no, no, no. <laughs> I don't know a lot of there's a lot of cocaine in this in this uh, Whitney Houston. We wouldn't we wouldn't have known that wearing that white shirt. It'd be a different white thing. That never mind. But, uh, <laughs> I I'm gonna mm, my conscience wants me to do a tie. 
can't, you can't do that. Can't, you can't do ties. Is that against? No, nah, we can't do a tie. You gotta, give a, you gotta give pick a point one. a piece. All right, <laughs> let me think about this logically real quick. I'm gonna go. Let's say Whitney Houston is gonna battle MC Hammer. Whitney Houston's got to win that one because of because of first of all record sales, twenty verse twelve. Uh, second of all, she died in a tragic way. That's real rock star stuff. Okay, then the second thing we got to go Ike Turner versus the Smiths. I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to. Uh, Smith and Whitney Houston. All right. All right. Wow. That's acceptable. I think we could swallow that one pretty easily. I mean, that's that Whitney Houston album. If you would have came out with something else, maybe, but that's that's mega, man. Yeah. That, it's, plus, it's her debut. So yeah. that's extra points right there. Yeah, the Turner, the Turner story was great, though. So I don't know. I'm giving, I'm giving a lot. I'm giving, I just know how, I also know a lot about, I don't know shit about Morrissey, but I know that everybody loves him. You know, and and tries to tell me to like him, but <laughs> I just got I don't know. <laughs> it's our new Randy Newman for the episode. <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. Never. doesn't do it for me, man. I don't know. All right, so you guys have control of the board. You took the lead. It's three points to two. And we only have one round left and there's only one category left. So where are we going? Yeah, I guess we will be going to hot products. Uh, Mike, I feel like I should go first here. Sure. All right. February 11th, 1985, at a toy fair, we were introduced to another staple of my childhood, Mask. Now, Mask, or as it is better known as Mobile Armored Strike Command, and yes, that's command with a K, (laughs) was a toy line pioneered by Kenner, which capitalized on the rising theme of action features and transformation, kind of similar to Transformers, but with more people involvement. Uh, the heroic mask were led by wealthy philanthropist Matt Tracker against the evil Venom or Vicious Evil Network of Mayhem, which is a <laughs> phenomenal acronym, uh, which these guys clearly were fans of. But these toys are awesome. Uh, there was like a, a vehicle, whether it's like a car or a truck or whatever, with like a driver who would wear a mask get it mask but the vehicle would change into like a secondary type of vehicle and i one i remember that i had was uh it was called condor which is like a green motorcycle that would also turn into a helicopter that was fantastic uh, i love those toys they were so much fun uh they released action figures from 1985 to 1988 and they also had a great animated series from 1985 until 1986 Now, while researching this, something made me insanely go from 6 to 12, and that was back in December of 2015. The Hollywood Reporter said that Hasbro and Paramount were joining forces to create a shared cinematic universe combining Mask with G.I. Joe, Micronauts, Visionaries, and ROM. And then later in April of 2018, Paramount announced that that the Mask film project would commence and would be directed by F. Gary Gray, who directed Fate of the Furious. So, uh, to say the least, I am mildly aroused. So, <laughs> are you though after the GI Joe thing that they did? Uh, if it's done better, I'm it's got to be it. done. Yeah, it's got to be done way better than they killed sure. GI Joe. Yeah, but I, I think when you get uh, F. Gary Gray involved, a, a proper director, proper uh, storyline around it. I mean, Mask was pretty awesome. I, I love that show. I the playing with the toys were it was so much fun. So um, I'm pretty stoked. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. There's a lot of potential for that to be pretty friggin' awesome. I would like to see them kind of do something on their own first, like just mask by itself before combining it with like a G.I. Joe. But 
I think uh, I think it'd be pretty friggin' sweet, and especially if you kind of make it along the lines of like a Fate of the Furious. Yeah, that'd be pretty hot shit. You know what's pretty decent from that whole uh, merger you're just talking about? Battleship. That's a guilty pleasure. I love that movie. It's not like maybe the best movie, but it was it was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed watching. Way better that. than I thought it was going to be. Yeah, yeah, I was that was a good flick. All right, so this is Mask being announced at a toy fair. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Let's throw it down to Mike Ranger for the hot products round. All right, I found an article in the Daily News from February 12th written by Judy Linscott titled Sneak Look in Santa Sack, Toymakers Tout Wears at Trade Show. (laughs) (laughs) The article covers the 1985 toy fair that was held in New York on February 11th featuring the newest toys from all the big manufacturers. It was there that companies showed off new items like the My Buddy doll, Mm. the Sectars, the Cabbage Patch Twins, and a new toy line from Mattel who hoped to bring young girls their very own action figure. Mattel already had a home run with the Masters of the Universe line, so this year they introduced the Shira Princess of Power toy line. Mattel announced that they would be backing the toy line with an animated series and a crossover episodes with the Masters of the Universe. Uh, the series itself appeared later that year in September, and the toy line has been reimagined several times since its debut and is still in production today. So uh, Mattel introduces the Shira Princess of Power toy line, and they were like you were able to like place your order for your store at, at the at the event. Mm, solid as fuck, very solid for the honor of Grayskull. All right, man crush. <laughs> I guess that's over to us. I don't know whose product is bigger. Uh, maybe you should go. Nah, I'll go first. How about I that? I think I can see yours from here, Mark. Yours is a lot bigger. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> All right, guys. So February 11th, 1990, you finally were able to purchase something for your very own home that everybody had been waiting for. So we go to newspapers.com, where we always find some of our great research here, and there's an ad. Hot rental properties, new on video. You could go ahead and purchase New York Stories, the uh, the Woody Allen movie. You also, that day, finally could purchase the Tom Hanks classic Turner and Hooch, available on video for the first time, suggested retail price of eighty nine ninety five. If you wanted a new copy of Turner and Hooch in your home. Now, see, again, bringing the Tom Hanks connection in. He was on that SNL episode. And to keep this even more topical, let's fast forward to current day. February 11th, just of this year. Well, hell, a couple of days ago, Disney Plus has announced that they have given a 12-episode order for a new TV series. Turner and Hooch, starring Josh Peck from Drake and Josh. 30 years after you could bring this into your home, it's going to be in your home once again. So that's my pick for Hut Products. It's Hut again after all these years. Turner and Hooch with Tom Hanks. Damn, I like you. Bringing the legs, man. I I never even knew that. They're bringing all kinds of shows at Disney+. Plus. Did you did you say that the the VHS was eighty nine dollars? Yeah, suggested oh retail God. price, brand new, eighty nine ninety five. Is that like is that like in, inflation or is that like that was what it caused then? That's like inflatio, like. <laughs> <laughs> no, like VHS were crazy expensive in the early nineties and late eighties. That if is you wanted insane. to buy it, yeah, if you wanted to buy a used copy, 
you know, you could get them for like 10 bucks. But if you wanted a new copy where the tape was still in watchable condition, VHS tapes just got all chewed up, much like everything in the Turner and Hooch movie. Hey! Oh, good one. <laughs> Plus, they didn't want you to like stray away from renting because at the time, exactly. like, the rental yeah. industry was enormous. And they were making shit tons of money hand over fist with that. So, of course, they're going to jack those prices up, but you're going to go rent it anyway and then copy it on your second VCR that you probably spent $600 on so you can copy movies. Uh, that's a good one, Mark. I like the little tie in there. You didn't tell me about that. Uh, all right. So February 12th, 1990, we get the highly anticipated sequel that all of us American kids were waiting for since we saw it debut in the movie, the wizard a few months earlier. Uh, the biggest challenge with this video game was finding it. Uh, supplies were super scarce at the time. The first shipment of this game was 250,000 units and they were all sold in the first three days of its release. Uh, matter of fact, the first ad that I could find on newspapers.com, again, we bring that up. Thank you so much, newspapers.com, for giving us all like a plethora of places to research. Uh, the first place I could find it in stock was actually Friday, February 16th at a Toys R Us. And uh, that ad had it for $49.99. That's around $99 in 2020. But the game I'm talking about here, Super Mario Brothers 3 which is the third best-selling NES game of all time with over 17 million copies sold. And this number is staggering. It's grossed well over $1.5 billion on that name, Super Mario Brothers 3, since its release. Uh, many people consider this arguably the best video game of all time. And that's not just from one publication. That's from lots of publications that I found. So I, I don't even want to name them all. A lot of people think this is the best video game ever. Uh, it's a monumental step in gaming at the time. Mike's a big video game guy. I'm sure he can attest to this. Uh, you know, they basically took Mario and Luigi to another level. Uh, no pun intended there, but we got this big world map now. Instead of like jumping on top of your enemies, they can actually slide. They could throw things. And my favorite thing now, they could wear the little uh, Tanuki suit and they could fly looking like the raccoon. Uh, it's just a monumental video game. They gave, this is how monumental it actually is. They gave this game its own cartoon series, not a super Mario brothers cartoon, but they no shit gave 26 episodes to a series called super Mario brothers three, because this game was so highly anticipated at the time. And you know, even certain rappers use uh lyrics celebrating Mario brothers. You know, I don't know who they are, but uh, you know, it's a pretty big thing. <laughs> You know, Mike, what would you say about like every Mario game from this point? Was it kind of built off the third? The third Super Mario Brothers game defined everything that a platformer could and should be. It has a ton of games that just like basically ripped the style. Uh, a lot of those Tiny Toon adventure games that came out on the NES are basically Super Mario Brothers 3 clones. Uh, but Nintendo's kind of right. weird. Like every Mario game seems to add a different mechanic and do something so different. Hard. Uh, but definitely Super Mario World is uh, an extension of Super Mario Bros. Three. Yeah, it's huge, huge game. Got legs. People still play it. Out of all, like I bought that uh, NES Classic. That's like the only game I play on there. Is Super Mario Three. Right. I'm not that good at it though. I can't get to the big. Uh, what do they call it? The uh, <laughs> The giant land or whatever it is. Oh, that's uh, the fourth level. 
Yeah, fourth the fourth level, world or whatever. Yeah, I I suck. Yeah, I actually <laughs> just finally completed that uh, over the summer. Wow, Damn. I've never yeah. completed 30, 30 that years game. Later. I've never been able to beat it. Chris Ranger is amazing at it. It's an incredibly hard game. Still is. It's fun though. You can't feel your thumb the next day though. That's like <laughs> yeah. one of those games. Like you completely <laughs> lose use of your thumb for like at least two weeks. Yeah. Actually, I think mine was even worse. From like one night. My daughter and I played it for like a couple hours and I couldn't, the tip of my thumb was so fucked up for like a month. I couldn't do shit with my left hand. Fucked up. Anyhow, that's February 12th, 1990. We got the release of Super Mario Brothers 3. All right. So that wraps up all the picks. Let's toss it down to Wax for the final judgment on this game. I mean, my, my nephew's got the, uh, you know they have the I, I, you one of you guys just called it uh, what the the, the NES thing, classic, yeah the classic, and Super Mario Brothers three is the game that you get stuck on playing it and I I like how like um compared to earlier video games, they really let you save and continue from where you at and get more time like right. they don't make you go all the way back to the beginning every fucking time like like some of the earlier video games do that makes them make them really really stressful. Uh, I realized recently and uh, Man Crush you brought this up like a lot of my music has been really, really, really influenced by who the guy whose name escapes me. I used to know his name, the guy who did all the music for the Mario Brothers uh, uh, games. Like, he used a lot of major seventh chords and crazy melodies. He based all, all of the songs on Latin dances. All those melodies are based on, like, sambas and... Uh, like merengue music and stuff like that, and that's oh, why shit. when you that's why when you play it, you hear the same thing over and over again, but you never really get sick of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when you play Mario, then you play certain times when you're hearing the same thing over and over again, it it you want to kill yourself hearing this. <laughs> but but the Mario the Mario melodies and the chords and the and the movements from different parts to different parts, it it it's even, after a million times you still you never really be like I I can't hear this anymore. You know, you're still cool with like the little music. You know what I mean? Bleep, 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 yeah. Bleep, 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 bleep. Yeah. And when and and it just and and especially when you get up into the clouds, it really makes you feel like it makes it has a sense of euphoria to it. You know what I mean? Damn, I didn't uh, even realize that. That's good shit. It's a the the it's a really good game as far as as far as music goes, and it's and it's a really good game as far as video games go. This game this is hard because I always harp on whatever the most recent thing you talked about was. Super Mario three and uh, Mark had the uh, Turner and Hooch. Turner and Hooch, and then and then there was the mask, and, and uh, Shira, and Shira. Man, that 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 Mario was big. The Mario was big. Mario three. I couldn't like, believe the sales figures over the thirty years of being, like over one and a half billion dollars. It's you know fuck. The, the incredible thing about that game is that no matter how many times they repackage it, people keep buying it. I've bought it, I don't know how many fucking times. <laughs> I saw somebody with a pair of Cortez sneakers. You know the Nike Cortezes? It was a Nike Cortez that was done in Super Mario 3 with the yellow and the blue, and it had like Super Mario on the front with Luigi on the back with a fucking tail that was hanging wow. off the back. Wow. Yeah, and I... Right. I just saw that. We saw we were at a mall, and I saw somebody wearing that shit. Like a Daniel Boone tail? Yes, yes, like, like raccoon? the raccoon tail. Oh, my yeah. God. Right. 
The only guy, the only guy that can get more air than Jordan is Demario is the raccoon. <laughs> and did you yeah. say you were in a mall and you saw Dan Cortez wearing this? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dan Cortez from MTV Sports. He was actually running through the mall and doing spins. He wouldn't even take the escalator. He would just get right up to the second floor. This fucking amazing. Fucking jock, baby. <laughs> oh, man. I haven't thought about Dan Cortez in a long time. <laughs> Nobody has. A long, long time since I thought of Dan Cortez. I think about Dan Cortez at least twice a week. <laughs> <laughs> But the the person nobody remembers is the guy that he went against. I don't I can't remember his name. What was it? Dan versus who? Exactly. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah, there was We're like talking about the uh, the Olympics. Yeah, it was like what the fuck was the other guy's name? That was Dan and Dave, and the, that was Dan not Dave. Dave Cortez. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, Dan Cortez. That was not Dan. Dan Cortez. It was that was Dan Dan O'Brien. And Dave Johnson. Yes. Well, nobody so remembers them athletes. either, but we remember Dan Cortez, so there's my point. It's because he was on MTV. <laughs> Rock and Jock was MTV. Like, Hell yeah. Some motherfucking basketball games, softball, with people that look like they've never played in their entire lives. But it was so much fun to watch. Yeah, it was. All right, so let's hear the final ruling from Big Wax. While I appreciate uh, Mass, because I haven't thought about that in so long, and that's what I like. I think the thing that I like about the show the most is hearing things that I haven't even thought about in a long time, such as Dan Cortez and, and Matt, Mass. Hey, I was like, holy shit, I forgot. I totally forgot about that. And that's that's definitely something that like the Hollywood people want a sure thing, so they reboot everything. That would that's a pretty good idea. It'd be a good idea to reboot that. And oh, they, they, they could do more with Shira, you know? Shit, they could do more with Super Mario Brothers three. And they are currently doing more with Turner and Pooch. I mean, um, I got to go with the, I got to go with Mario three, man. I got to go with that. And then maybe that's a little bit of a, you know, an age thing because I, like 90, that's when I was, I remember that more than I remember the other ones. I don't know, but I got to go, I got to go with it. Cause I got, I got a real affinity for that, for that game, the music, uh, the way, you know, the, what you said about the big world, you know, I, yeah, I got, I'm going to go with the nineties. Sweet. Wow, Mama Luke's pulled that one out. Yeah, when he said mask, I was like, oh, fuck, this is going to be a tough round. Yeah, that, right. that's one of the closest games we've had in a long time. And I still didn't win. It's, it's Turner and Hooch, <laughs> man. That... What was the score? What was the final score? Final score was four to three. Oh. Came down to the final. This happens a lot. Like, we, we mentioned this uh, before we even started. It always comes down to those two-point rounds at the end. So if you play the game right, and you put your shittiest picks towards the beginning, which Mike clearly did when he came out and said, what's our worst thing that we have? And they started with news. You know, you can kind of just build on it from there. But the last two rounds are always pressure cookers, man. So great job on selecting. Dude, last time you were here, you dropped us a version, an acoustic version of Limousine. Mm. Is there any way you could do something acoustic from either of the two albums? Because there's a couple songs that I fucking love. Like, When I'm Gone, I can listen to, like, 9,000 times in a row. Like, I'm, oh, I'm glad you like that. Like, Super Mario and shit. <laughs> and uh, the, the World is Fucked Up is great, too. Oh, thanks, man. Thanks. So, like, I, I feel, let me, I don't have, let me, it would take me, like, 15 seconds to go get a guitar. Yeah, do whatever play, you gotta I do. Some, yeah, I can play some. All right, yeah, sweet. <laughs> All right, I wasn't expecting to play anything. I forgot that I did that last time. What did I play yeah. last time? Lim- you, played, limousine? you played Limousine. It was fucking amazing, too. It came out good and everything. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Um, You said When I'm Gone? Yeah. 
I wish I, I wish I knew a, I wish I knew a song from something that was referenced. Damn it. Uh, uh well, you could do MC Hammer. <laughs> <laughs> and touch this. I'm like <laughs> uh, how the Mario how the Mario thing go? Uh which one? Ban in it. Ban it. Yes. <laughs> there it is. That's when it gets hard. <laughs> it makes me want to jump into a pipe. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not, whatever. I'm not going to sit here and learn um, Mario. I'll play the one that you like. All right, do it, man. It's called uh, When I'm Gone. Hopefully I don't fuck it up. I haven't played this in a long time, but I'll try. Ain't no telling when your time is up. So everybody with me, lift your cup. For tomorrow we may all be dead. That's what a dead wise man said. The moment right before the lightning struck. Drink one for the ones who drank too much. Smoke one for the ones who smoked before us. Pour some liquor out for those who passed on. And roll one up for me when I am gone. Before mankind could even pitch a tent, he discovered how the alcohol ferments. And for the next 10,000 years, he drank his liquors, wines, and beers. Let's honor him for all the time he spent. When tribal cavemen wanted to get high, there wasn't a dispensary nearby. Before he found that OG Kush, he smoked every shrub, tree, and bush. Let's not forget his sacrifice, says I. Drink one for the ones who drank too much. Smoke one for the ones who smoked before us. Pour some liquor out for those who passed on. Roll one up for me when I am gone. Every day I'm driving in my car. Knock on wood, I hope I make it far. I'm not just knocking for myself, I'm also knocking for the health of the dude who drives my lift home from the bar. They say they're making new technology that'll make us all live for eternity. If that stuff really exists, please put me on the waiting list. If I still die, then roll one up for me. Drink one for the ones who drank too much. Smoke one for the ones who smoke before us. Pour some liquor out for those who passed on. And roll one up for me when I am. No. Fuck yeah. yeah. Nice. Shit. <laughs> Thanks, man. That was awesome. Dude, that was fucking amazing. And if you guys have not heard Wax, he's you're pretty much Big Wax on every social media platform, right? Yeah, on the Twitter, I'm at Big Wax, V-I-G-W-A-X. On Instagram, I'm at Big Wax, B-I-G-W-A-X. And uh, my website is wax.com.com. That's W-A-X-D-O-T-C-O-M dot C-O-M. <laughs> yes. And go over to Spotify. Go listen to, bah! I think I did it better. <laughs> I, got some, I got some syllables in that one because uh, it's fucking awesome. I would recommend, if you, if you want to listen to some of the stuff, go to Spotify. And even like, uh, if you want to get a taste for what I, my ma- shit, like, I like how Spotify kind of accidentally or purpose curates like a, like a best of list. Yeah. You know, when you just start, go, you just go to an artist and it's kind of like their songs people listen to the most. My, like, mine's pretty good. Like, mine's, I'm set, I'm, I'm like, okay, that represents what I do pretty yeah. well. 
absolutely. Yeah. And there's a there's a lot, and you work with a lot of different people. There's a lot of different like this dude raps. Like obviously that song wasn't a rap song. That's why I wanted people to hear something different right you know but you you're you have like such an eclectic mix like you do all kinds of shit he's a true Thanks, renaissance man. man yeah for real <laughs> and go over to his youtube and check out it are you still doing the uh where you show up at like some restaurant and just eat their food yeah i do chain react a show called chain reaction which is a review food review show where i only do chain restaurants <laughs> what's the awesome. latest one you went to uh, i just put out a new one two days ago for Wingstop. Ooh. Wingstop, yeah. I started um, doing this a while, a few years ago, and I just brought it back. And I apparently people tell me that now, like everybody and their mom on YouTube reviews all these fast food restaurants and shit. But hey, you know, I still think it's funny. The Wingstop was good. It was the first time I'd ever been there. I'd never been to Wingstop before. Nice. We'll tie that into Vision Quest too somehow. Yeah. <laughs> the mm. Wingstop, like there'll be a rock throwing scene there. It'll be good. Well, maybe that's his, like after school job is he gets a job at Wingstop. Yes. Oh, right. dude, we can flesh this out in like 20 minutes. It'll be fucking fantastic. But thanks again for coming on, man. Yeah, thanks a thanks lot. Thanks for having Max. me. That was really fun. This is a great show, guys. Yeah, fun talking to you, man. And Drew Zachman. Why don't you tell everybody what's going on on the One Headlight 90s podcast? Yeah, so we uh, we just did uh, two episodes. It was a two-parter of one hit wonders from the 90s we actually went through and ranked all 66 of them yeah if you if you like mama number five maybe don't listen to that episode <laughs> but otherwise uh yeah check it out we just did uh one hit wonders and then coming up next we're gonna be we're gonna start uh reviewing some bands uh so i'll be doing pearl jam the offspring 311 so some 90s bands we'll kind of get into like the history of them uh where what you know what they're up to now and then also We'll just give our own little top 15. So I'm on Twitter at 1HL Podcast. So uh, when I start getting close to those episodes, I'll be putting uh, and posting some comments for people. So I'd love to hear what you guys think about what your kind of top 15s are for those particular bands. So that's what we got coming up. 1HL Podcast? Yep. Yeah, actually, I just added you on Twitter too. So Okay, cool. Yeah, that sounds awesome. All right. And Mike Ranger, why don't you give our listeners a sample of what you got coming up on the Video Rangers podcast? Oh, well, right now we have a, a lovely review of the 1987 classic Mannequin. Yes. Uh, so which, that's it. Which came out 33 years ago today. Yeah. Saw it in the theater. Did Saw you really? Saw it in the theater. Just because just I like the song. And she went crazy. What do they know? Put your arms around me, baby. Don't ever let go. Wow, we get two song. songs from Wax. <laughs> let the world around us just fall apart. Baby, we can make it if we're hard to hard. We can build this thing together. Stand us strong forever. Nothing's gonna stop us now. And if this world runs out of love, we'll still have each other. Nothing's gonna stop us. Nothing's gonna stop us. Mm. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> you finally got a song you could tie into. Yeah. The there it is. There it is. All right. Well, on that note, Duelers, we'll end the episode right here. But don't worry. If you've missed an episode, you can always go back on our website, DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Spotify, 
Now, please make sure once you subscribe to the show, leave us a review. Tell us what you think about this show. So until next time, duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Podcast New York. Be heard.